Driving it home with Patty Vasquez, Patty Vasquez. From global conflicts to greenhouse gases, the folks refusing to wear masks says, and politicians getting caught grabbing asses says, she's driving it home with Patty Vasquez. Ooh, happy Friday, everybody. Uh, we are going to be doing a, something a little bit different Tonight, uh, first, I want to thank our sponsors, Monaco Brewing. Go to the Patty V Show page to find out where you can pick up a progressive brew in the Chicagoland area. Thank you to our friends at Kids Above All. Visit their website, kidsaboveall.org, and find out how you can support their mission to help children feel happy, healthy, and safe. And we want to thank our friend Warren at European and U.S. Car Service. Go to europeanus.com and find out about all the great work he does and how he can help you with any car trouble that you have. So, tonight, let's get started because I am in Cleveland and uh, we're talk a little bit later uh, before I turn things over to my co-host and my fill-in host for the rest of the show, Adam Selzer. He's a tour guide. He's an author, a historian, and one of my very good friends. Hey, Adam, how's it going tonight? Hey, it's great to be here, Patty. Uh, they told me there'd be a seatbelt here. Um, <laughs> is, is there an airbag? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, it would be much more chaotic if I was there, considering where, oh, how I'm operating tonight. And, right. uh, and I want I want to kick things off uh, with a quick conversation. Uh, I know that she's really busy. Uh, knocking on doors, meeting with people. You know, this is an incredibly frenzied time right now as we head into these runoff elections. I know that you might not live in the 30th Ward, Adam, but a lot of our listeners do, or they have someone that they know that lives there. So I want to introduce them to the candidate that is vying for the aldermanic seat of the 30th Ward. Jessica Gutierrez joined us on the line, and you can visit her website, jessica2023.com, as we talk to her. Jessica, how are you doing? I'm doing amazing. Patty, can I just say really quick, that is the best intro jingle I've ever heard. I need to get myself one of those. I will hook you up. We all deserve one. I will hook you up with my good friend Steve Goody. He he would love that. We need it playing on the background of your website. How amazing would that be? Right. I love. I was dancing, and 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 then I and then I realized that it wasn't just music. It was you. It was your name. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I think everyone deserves that. And and I know that you are crazy busy. So we're thrilled to talk to you. I want to talk to you first of all. How how is it going today? What uh, you know? I know that you are out there talking to people. Delivering your message, uh, you know, and you came out of the uh, this the general with a plurality. Tell us how it's going. And you know what? It's going amazing. We um, we've won twenty of the twenty six precincts, and if you look at our results on a map, you'll see that we won every neighborhood in the thirtieth ward. And what that's telling me, Patty, is that our message of unification and bringing together communities and neighborhoods and people that seemingly may be different, right? On paper, they may look different, um, but at the end of the day, everybody wants the same thing, right? They want to feel safe. They want good schools. And they want an alderman who's going to show up, right? And so that's what they want. They like having you knock on their doors. They like the phone calls. We're having amazing conversations. We're 12 points ahead, right? And we just ran our poll, which put us at 20 points ahead. And, you know, we're doing all of the important groundwork that needs to be done, right? We're knocking on doors. We're making phone calls. We're having, you know, small coffees. We're, 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 we're getting out our message, and, and it's working. Oh, my God, you sound so passionate. I, I don't know about you, Adam, but I'm kind of <laughs> jealous. I live in the 45th Ward, and if anyone's familiar with the chaos in my neighborhood. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Adam, did well, you you're just, I, you're just north. you're just north of us, so we I understand am. the chaos up there. <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit. 
Uh, I want to make sure that uh, we have Adam. Adam, what ward do you live in? I'm in the 50th ward. You're in the 50th ward. Yeah. So I, 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 you know, did you have anyone knock on your door, Adam, when you were? Uh, yeah, I did. I had um, Waze's people knock on my door a few times, actually. We always had good conversations with them. Yeah, it's always, and that's, that's the thing. Is, and Jessica, I know that you're meeting people and delivering this message. And, and yes, public safety comes up uh, quite a bit in conversations. But I also know you have a 100-day plan that I'm reading on your website. Tell folks what that is because some, yes, please tell us. It's time, right, that aldermen, we need to get back to the roots. We need to get back to the problems. And I really feel that if we don't have strategies that are driven in data, right, that something that something tangible that we can give to our residents, that we're just going to fall between the cracks again, right, literally and figuratively. So what I want to do is in our first 100 days, we're going to hit the ground running, right? We're going to go block by block, precinct by precinct, and have an audit of the ward. 60% of the ward has remained the same since the, the, since the remap. 40% is different. Right. I need. To, I mean, this is not only a matter of infrastructure. This is a matter of public safety. Right. We need to find out where is it going to be necessary for bike lanes. Right. Visibility issues, um, abandoned storefronts, um, you know, uh, um, vacant lots. Uh, where is the infrastructure uh, problems with our streets, with our alleys, um, with our sidewalks? I want to get people talking. I want to get people out of their houses. This is a ward that is ready to be organized. They're waiting for leadership to come in and to say we're present, we're here with you, and we're going to help you get all of your needs answered, right? I don't think in, in an alderman's office there should be no space for someone to say this is not my jurisdiction, Right. No, that's when we come in and we say we're going to build a coalition of state reps, of state of state senators, of commissioners, of aldermen, of Congress people. So that when you come into my office, if we don't have the answer, we're going to find that answer for you. So between 100 days, our 100 day plan, uh, um, you know, to, to give something back to the community so that they can look up, Patty. Right. They're going to be able to look up their precincts. They're going to be able to look up their blocks and say, wow, a lot of my neighbors have the same issues as I do. Let's go gang up on the aldermen together. <laughs> oh my God. I, yeah, I'm like, I mean, that is the thing. Is it's got to be a much broader picture. We talk a lot about, you know, from ward to ward, how there is this inconsistency, whether it's the bike lanes or, you know, businesses. You know, in our neighborhood, we have storefront after storefront that is vacant. And I know that one of the, the elements that you have is wanting to have a database. And let, so people have an idea. I mean, that's the idea of transparency is someone can go to a landing spot and go, OK, here's what's out there. Tell us a little bit about that as well. Well, we can't start, right? We, we, you know, we need to start by finding out where the holes are. We need to find out where the problematic areas, right? We have, we have, we, we live in, 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 in a, in a ward that's drawn uh, the Chicago way, right? We have an east side of the ward and we have a west side of the ward. It is a story of, of the rich and sometimes the less fortunate working families and the wealthy, right? And how is it that we're going to bring all of these people together, right? How is it that we're going to build a community? And I think that if we have a leader who's ready to unify, who's ready to go out there, and sometimes Patty, have those conversations that are uncomfortable, right? I always tell my students as a teacher, I say, if you're not feeling a little uncomfortable right now, I'm not doing my job as a teacher because you're not learning, right? And that's what I want to do. Let's nope. rock the boat a little bit. Let's rock the boat a little bit so that we can learn and then we can come together. All right. What do you What do you teach? 
So I was a I was a high school teacher. I was an elementary school teacher, and then I was doing that as I was uh, completing my PhD. Um, and I also taught. I taught three courses at UIC. Um, I was also an English teacher for four years in Jerusalem. All right, uh, in East Jerusalem, while I was working on a on a postdoc. All right. Excellent. Now, my, my only question for anybody running for anything right now, based on some of the things that have been coming up in the news, are you being very careful who you let handle your social media likes and retweets? <laughs> oh man, um, you know we don't have uh, we don't have the Paul Vallis problem here. <laughs> your, your words, not mine. I didn't say it. I didn't say it. <laughs> But <laughs> how about Lieutenant you know, Governor of Tennessee problem too? <laughs> you definitely, you definitely need to be careful, right? On on social media, it's definitely not only been an issue, you know, for one of our mayoral candidates. I mean, other candidates have fallen in this, but mm. you know what? Social media is—it's just really broad based. It's, I think it's necessary. You know, it's really helpful for us to get messages across mm-hmm. and to, to keep in touch with with a broader um, part of the ward. But you got to be careful. You always have to be careful. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And you got to watch out there. Uh, I've heard about candidates oh, the last couple of uh, cycles. You know, older people who seem not to realize that their likes and retweets are public knowledge. And that's coming back oh, to haunt yeah. quite a few people who are like liking statuses that are going in complete opposite direction of how they're trying to run, and invariably. Yeah. They blame it on an intern or something. Yep. Yeah, Who's giving the interns the keys to something this important? I um, the keys are, are definitely not in the hands of our interns here. <laughs> I'm um, sure your interns in the are great. Of, of me, they're my they're they're in my hands. Um, but you know what I will say is that we have volunteers in our office, and they're all aged 18 to 21, mm. and they are working the doors. They are making calls. They are learning how to talk to constituents, how to talk to residents, how to explain problems that are going on. And that's what I love, right, is that we have a campaign where we have youth and and um, and they're learning right how to activate their political efficacy um, in in a, in, a, in a time right. I mean, if you looked at the the percentage of eighteen to twenty four year olds that voted in the mayoral election or in any election at that, it's so low, right? And I think what's really fun is walking into my office. Um, you know, I I hope that they're able to see in me themselves. Right, that that we are generationally actually very connected and listen to the same music and able to have conversations and and not just be, you know, the candidate or someone who's not approachable. So I'm really proud of our volunteers. And you know what? We're not just using them for social media. I mean, that probably sounds like the lane that they should be in. But no, they're learning how to talk to strangers and strangers that become friends. Right. I think I think it's kind of people love to say that kids under about 30 only know how to talk via social media, but that's just not true. No, no. And, and we're proving that wrong here in our office. Um, it just takes a little teaching, right? It takes a little extra time, a, a little bit or a little bit more organizing. Right. But, it would know, be a skill I for any generation that you have to learn. Yeah, I had a I have a young I have a young woman in the office who you know she has been working with us for maybe two three weeks she comes through the door of the office she slams the paperwork on the table and she said 34 pluses boom <laughs> and i look at her astonished because patty you've run for office before you know 34 pluses in a night oh my god on door? that's a 
<laughs> That's incredible, and I want that for I looked at me. her and I said, I'm not going anywhere. You're staying right here. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. And, and Adam brings up a good point about, uh, you know, the, uh, the candidate that's running for mayor who, you know, with whether it's I didn't run my own social media or this sort of shifting uh, uh, messaging over the last 10 years, 20 years of where his values are and what he stands for. And tell us a little bit about what that means to you to, to, to stand by what you say, both in action and in deed. Well, I think we're also seeing that in our in, in, in our campaign. You know, from day one, our values and our messaging has stayed the same. And, you know, I see, you know, my opponent suddenly trying to uh, paint herself as a progressive. Listen, if you weren't a progressive in the beginning of this campaign, you're not going to be a progressive at the end of this campaign. <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, right we love the ones who show up late. <laughs> yeah. Right? We love them, too. Right? Yeah. But you don't change your messaging just to, um, you know, try try to, to win over a vote. That is something that comes from your core, mm. right? And what comes from my core is being at the front lines of immigration reform, is, you know, being a five-year-old, right, at the Pride Parade, is, is um, you know, making sure, right, that, that, that there's, that there's accountability and that there's transparency and that um, and that, that 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 our message right of unification and um, of, of of bringing so many different people so many different communities together is is the name of our game um, so yeah you know listen I think it's also natural that some people change over time right um, but sometimes there's just core values that don't. And and uh, and and you can't you cannot be the flip flop candidate, right? That's what we're <laughs> seeing. Just flip flop, flip flop, flip flop. <laughs> Well, I know that you've got to get back out there. And, uh, and you know, April 4th, folks, by the way, and early voting is starting soon. And Jessica Gutierrez is running for the Alderwoman of the 30th Ward. So give us your pitch, uh, and, and we'll send you on your way to get back to work. Yeah, so, listen, it is. it has been 20 years since we've had transparent and responsive, um, active, good governance in the 30th Ward. Uh, the 30th Ward is ready to go out, to be organized. Um, we're ready to, to have our 100-day plan out there, to hit the streets, to listen to the residents, to listen to the problems, and to make sure that we're creating a space in Chicago where, where all families are feeling safe and all families are feeling that they can afford to live in this city, that there are good schools for all children, and, and representation in our wards, in our city council, that is going to be bold and fierce and that is going to protect the residents in the 30th ward. That's what I want to do. I want to be bold and fierce, not only, you know, for, for, for the 30th ward and for every resident that lives here, um, so that they can be proud, right? They can be proud of what they're sending downtown and so that we can get things done and that we can make Chicago the city that we all know and love. Jessica, we wish you the very best. And folks, if you live in the 30th or you know someone who's in the 30th ward, tell them to visit jessica2023.com. And uh, I'm sending a text. I know that you're on your campaign manager's phone, so you can go ahead and read that text. Uh, and we wish you the very best. Have a great evening. And let's touch base before April 4th, okay? Let's do that. And I got to hear that jingle again. Send it to me, Patty. <laughs> <laughs> I can do that. And we'll get, I'll get you All connected right. with Steve Goody as well. Take care, my friend. Take, we love talking Bye. to you. Bye.
<laughs> Go get him. Adam uh, Selzer is in studio. I am in Cleveland, folks, as we drive it home until 7. Uh, we'll talk a little bit of, uh, in a moment about why uh, this is happening and uh, how much of a screw-up I am, and we should all have the same uh, time zones. Uh, <laughs> more after this on WCPT Damn you, General Time Convention of 1883. <laughs> we'll be right back. Mind over matters. Dr. Amy Harris. Nuan, as you know, this show is about challenging you to think differently, to make different choices in your life, to take action, to create positive outcomes in your life. So I want to challenge you to look at your life holistically. To where am I satisfied? What areas uh, need attention? And then go to work, take an action, what you need to do. Mind over matters with Dr. Amy Harris Nuan. Sundays at 10 a.m. on WCPT 820. Because facts matter. You are listening to WCPT 820. Hi, folks. I'm Kirk Bankstead from the Monaco Brewing Company, and I sell Choice Hard Seltzer, an all-natural grapefruit and lime-flavored booze that you can enjoy for only 100 calories a can. A percentage of the proceeds of each can sold goes to reproductive rights groups in the Chicagoland area. Enjoy a light, refreshing hard seltzer and support reproductive freedom at the same time. Now available at Provisions Uptown Chicago and R&J Wine and Spirits in Glenview, as well as Eastside Cafe, Coffee and Wine Bar in East Dundee, where Kate is serving up smiles and drink responsibly. And we are back. Adam Selzer is in studio. Uh, thank you for tuning in, and thank you, Adam, for being there. And, sure. Uh, and, uh, so, yes, I, uh, I, you know, I have been just on uh, full speed, I think, since Declan was in the hospital. I've uh, been trying to balance a lot of things. And uh, my good friend Kevin Bozeman invited me to be his opening act in Cleveland. And I was like, that sounds great. I haven't been on the road in a while. And I think once I got on the plane, like, my whole body went, I, I don't know how to function anymore. <laughs> because there wasn't anything I could do. Everything was completely out of my control. Uh, that I, I just, I realized that I had screwed up uh, being able to do this show while I'm here, what time the show started, what time zones meant. Uh, so wait a minute. So what was the convention? How do we how do we end up with this, these time zones? Oh, it was in uh, the 1880s. There was a group that met in Chicago. Was, uh, at the time, they had a, uh, there was mostly local time. You went to Chicago, the clocks were all set based on what time the sun hit high noon. And that meant that when it was noon in Chicago, in Indianapolis, it would be like 1222 or 1242. Or then in Des Moines, it would be like 1115. So if you were traveling from one city to the other, you had to really go like pouring through the timetables, not only thinking like train A leaves the station traveling 45 miles per hour, you also had to adjust for how the time was going to change. So in 1880, the early 1880s, a group met at the uh, at the Grand Pacific Hotel in Chicago and decided to divide everything up into time zones. And initially, clockmakers were like, all right, now we're going to be able to sell everybody two clocks. They're going to need one for local time and one for railroad time. And what? then there were people saying things like, oh, no, now the railroad companies think that they're more powerful than the sun. But very quickly, most cities started using railroad time as just their regular time. So within a generation or so, railroad time was just what time it was. And all, all the time, like whenever you know, we got daylight savings time kicking in or going out, I can never remember which, uh, this weekend, every time I see people on social media saying things like, hear me out on this, just put a sundial in the middle of town, and whenever that says noon, it's noon. It's like, okay, now you're going to have to check you know, which city every baseball game is in so you know what time it starts. Wow. Oh, my God. And then, of course, this actually works out because now we are heading into this weekend. Is this Daylight Savings Weekend? Yeah. Oh uh, Sunday. So it's scary. either uh, spring forward. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen on Sunday. 
<laughs> oh my god, I'm so messed up, Adam. This is a. I'm so glad that uh, you were able. Well, I'm excited to have you fill in too. And I am. Uh, by the way, for folks who uh, also tune into Whiskey and a Cookie, I just could not figure out how to make it happen tonight because uh, Adam's in studio. Uh, I don't think Elliot was available. I my show here starts at seven, and uh, and I wasn't going to put the pressure for Ez. To, like, so. <laughs> Running Whiskey so, and a Cookie all by yourself can be kind of tricky. I've done it for yes. half an hour at a time here and there. Yeah, and so I didn't want, so I figured, you know what, this is going to have to be the first time that I just have to say I can't do it. So, by the way, uh, (laughs) go back and watch last week. We're going to find us a clip show or something. (laughs) That's what we should do. And uh, and I haven't really mentioned, well, I'll I'll figure out how to talk about this next week, but I am having surgery on Thursday. But I think even in my grogginess, I might be able to kick off Whiskey and Cooking next Friday night. But I will be out next Thursday, Friday, and Monday of next week. So uh, I'll figure figure out how to juggle that, but I am so excited to have you on. Tell me, uh, I know that you, so first of all, I want to let folks know if they want to call in in the next half hour, too, uh, you know, if, if there's I, there's a lot of great listeners, Adam, who uh, ha- have things on their mind and, and topics in the news that uh, they've been, you know, they want to chat about. fantastic. What, I've got a list of topics, but I'm just terrified I'm going to run out after, <laughs> before 90 Adam, minutes are up, you know. Adam, you are such a, a just, you're, you have such a, a breadth of knowledge about so many topics, and you're very passionate about our democracy. Oh, sure. I can, about, ra- I can ramble about a lot, but there's nothing I fear more than dead airspace, you know? You'll be fine. But I, uh, I do want to know what, what, what news stories are catching your attention. Because uh, I, I, you know, I'm trying to have MSNBC on the background and CNN and sure. some of those things. What, what jumps out at you? Is it the mayoral race? Is it something national? There's, there's so many things going on. There's the mayoral race. There's the news that Trump has been invited to come testify, which probably means that he's about to be indicted in New York. Uh, there's the jobs report today. 311,000 new jobs added last month. That's a pretty good number. And Lauren Boebert has just announced that she's about to become a grandmother after years of uh, years of opposing things like sex education, uh, contraception, etc. I believe she's been opposed to contraception, at least in a broad sense. Uh, now she's about to become a grandmother at the age of 36. Yeah. Well, you know, that was a, the Sarah Palin joke that everybody had was, what do you call a parent who doesn't believe in, in sex education? A grandparent. Yeah. <laughs> Well, what was, the, mean, what was that the correct answer? Yeah. Oh, okay. Good. <laughs> That's it. It's true. I, you know, and she's so proud of it. And, uh, and we could go on and on about that. But, folks, if you have something you want to chat with Adam about, 773-763-9278. That's the number to call in and jump on mm-hmm. about any of the topics you, that you have on your mind or that uh, that we've just discussed. And uh, I know that you'll do great. I'm so excited and uh, would love to have you, uh, you know, fill in. And then you have sure. an author coming on as well. Uh, yeah, at 6 o'clock we'll be joined by James Clyes, who has written a new book called I'll Take Everything You Have. It's about uh, it's about a 16-year-old who discovers the queer subculture in Chicago in 1934. The oh, very hot right. summer in 1934. It's a really cool book. It's a very uh, nice noir caper. I love a good caper. Yeah, I know you showed us the cover of that. I know you'll talk about it oh, more. Oh, yeah, it's a fantastic have- cover as well. And I've actually got an article out in the Tribune today. Oh, excellent. Well, tell us a little bit about that. I know you'll talk more about it when you come back, but tell us about your, op- your, your oh, sure. piece. Um, my new piece now is I, I realized I was going through other mayoral election stuff and found out that the Chicago Daily Inter-Ocean's coverage of the 1899 mayoral election was just wild. I mean, people 
promoted scandals and stuff all the time, and people accused every paper had their candidate that they backed, and they all uh, accused the others of all sorts of wrongdoing. But in the Chicago Daily Inter Ocean, they acted like the incumbent Carter Harrison Jr. was a Batman villain or something. They connected him personally to every piece of crime that was going on in the city. They listed off, they read a long list day after day of all of his henchmen, guys named uh, uh, Stubby Dan, Ugly Pat, Sly Teddy, Tommy the Clock, Kid Roach, the Medicine Kid. Um, most of these guys wow. had never been in the press before and never would again, which strongly implies to me that uh, some reporter just had a really good time making up those lists. But they're, they're, they were claiming that Carter Harrison Jr. was going to be importing a group of vagabonds, tramps, and thieves, uh, enough okay. to fill a share song, uh, who were going to be voting for him illegally. Then a guy was killed in the loop, and they said, oh, that was because he was rumored to be our informant. Carter Harrison had him killed personally. And on and on, every bit of crime that came up, they also managed to tie it back to him. The reason why I found was entirely personal and petty. Um, the Chicago Daily Inter Ocean had been bought about a year before by Charles Tyson Yerkes, who was a streetcar baron who had been lobbying for years. He had a, an, his franchise on the city streets to run his streetcars was going to be expiring in about five years. He had been lobbying and lobbying. He offered uh, Governor Altgeld like a $2 million bribe in 1895 to extend his franchise by another 50 years. But Carter Harrison ended up killing it a few months before the election. He knew that that would, giving him another 50 years would have been horrifying for his election. People, nobody could really stand Charles Tyson Yerkes in Chicago. Uh, he believed that the more crowded a, strain, a streetcar was, the more profitable it was. So he believed in slow service, overcrowded cars. Um, the extension just wasn't worth it. He definitely visited Harrison at his house and tried to bribe him personally. But the measure was de- defeated, so three months later he used his own personal newspaper uh, to get petty revenge, just painting this guy as an absolute Batman villain. And, you know, I, I really wish, my, my point is that we're hearing all kinds of conspiracy theories about the current mayoral election, but they're not writing in characters like Kid Roach and Tommy the Clock. I feel like we're kind of getting the short end of the stick here. <laughs> right? Yeah, I think, uh, and here's the thing. <laughs> There's plenty of character to yeah. uh, paint a, a picture like that. There's no <laughs> doubt about I mean, I, and look, uh, by the way, I want to let Adam know, because I, I, we didn't touch on this before as I turn it, the keys over to you. Um, this is an opinion show. And your opinions, this is, I mean, do not hold back if you feel like you want to cut loose on any candidate. And it's, uh, you know, the opinions right. of Adam's are his, and, and that's, do not feel like there's any handcuffs on you. All right. Uh, I, I will say <laughs> I, the, the letters I've gotten based on the article, the Vallis fans seem not to like the article very much. That's all right. I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I cited at the beginning. I was there were talking heads on cable saying that uh, Johnson's going to be elected by a, a, a cabal of teachers who will be using mail-in voter fraud or cartel yeah. of teachers. Oh, beer. Uh, you oh, know, there, there are conspiracies oh, about Vallis too, but they're just not nearly as weird or as entertaining. Yeah, it's gonna be it's a it's a wild ride already with this race. But uh, yeah, I uh, I I'm turning it over to you. Have fun. Uh, I'll touch base with you over the weekend, and, uh, and I'm so glad that you're there. I'm excited to uh, to share you with the audience. Thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend, and uh, take it away, Adam. More after this on WCPT820 Heartland Signal. Hello. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs, is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at comed.com slash clean energy. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Patty Vasquez is taking your calls now. 
at 773-763-9278. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez now on WCPT 820. All right. Turn your dial for a while to the voice with the smile. 820 marks the spot. 12820 on your radio dot. So I've been trying to work on my DJ patter all night, uh, cobbling it together from old sitcoms and things. Uh, we have Jim on the line. He wants to talk about Chicago American history politics. Uh, Jim, are you there? Yeah, hi, Adam. How are you? Hey, pretty well. Patty's in, in Ohio. Now, this week, this week started with a story in Ohio. The state's attorney in Ohio pulled off the biggest robbery a politician's pulled off in the history of the United States, the biggest corruption state, by far in the whole history of the United States. It was pretty good to do. Sixty million bucks he stole. Him and one of his minions. Now, one of the, one of the people that was on the radio for two days. Of course, the story you've got to you know you've got to chop down Mount Everest here to get the story for three. You don't get three day stories anymore. <laughs> That's true. Everything's you know, gone in forty five minutes. Yeah, yeah, everything's gone. Everything's gone an hour. You know, you're not going. You're not going. Nobody has legs anymore. You know. Yeah, I was trying to make a list no of all the things to anymore. talk about, but what's still going to be relevant by five o'clock? Yeah, no, I know it. But anyway, this guy, I, I don't know what his name was. I should have wrote it down. But it was a story for a couple of days. We, they heisted $60 million in Ohio, the Republican state's attorney and his minion. Huh. And all I could think of is that and the first mayor of Chicago, was, the first, the last Republican mayor of Chicago was Big Bill Thompson. Big Bill. Was two, yeah, Big he was known as Two Pocket Thompson. <laughs> he would, yeah. He would take a hot stove in a minute. I mean, this guy was the most corrupt politician. And he was he was such a goofball too. He was um, he was always doing things like you know he made such a big deal about how he was running on an anti England platform. He promised to punch the King of England in the snoot. Uh, he tried to ban pro England library books. Uh, he organized debates where instead of the other opponents, he'd bring uh, rats in cages with labels of the uh, opponents' names on the cage. No wonder he got elected mayor. The <laughs> Irish, I could see that. That's that. That was the plan. Yeah, to go after the uh, the the Irish and the German the vote. Ball. It didn't. It didn't work. As, it didn't work in the end. Yeah, but anyway, he got he had, he had so many speakeasies, and uh, I mean, he was really similar. But this yeah. guy in Ohio, I mean, one of the callers identified these two characters. But they with sixty million. 60 million bucks they grant. Anyway, you have a great show and have a good weekend. Thanks, you, Adam. All right, thanks a lot, Jim. <laughs> 60 million bucks, that's quite a lot. Um, now, the Pfizer Forum, I just want to bring this up a minute. The Pfizer Forum in Milwaukee, the new concert arena from a few years ago, got $250 million in taxpayer dollars to get built. I assume they promised they were going to be providing a lot of jobs. But, you know, I was up there the other day for the Springsteen concert, and I have never seen a worse load into a building. They did not have nearly enough security guards to process everybody in a timely manner. I was in line for over an hour trying to get into that building. I missed two songs. If I serve for them, you Robert Barons, you owe me two songs. I will never forget this. I will never forgive. Um, well, seeing Bruce in Milwaukee has been a long-time goal of mine ever since uh, I was in college. I was driving pizza around and listening to a bunch of Springsteen bootlegs. It was, you know, driving through this old factory town seemed like a good uh, opportunity to get familiar with the work of the boss. I didn't know too much about it, but there was this great bootleg of a show from 1975 in Milwaukee where there was a bomb scare 
here. Somebody called in a bomb threat to the arena. They had to empty everything out for a couple of hours. Bruce and the band went to the Fister Hotel and got really drunk. So it's a bootleg of when they came back and finished the show with uh, two hours of jamming with probably the only time Bruce has ever been publicly drunk, and it was hilarious. Uh, he kept shouting, are you loose? Are you loose? And since then, every time he has played in Milwaukee, pretty much, he has come out and said, are you loose? And I didn't miss that. He said it during Kitty's Back, and then again at the uh, last song. Excellent show. The man is 73. He no longer slides across the stage on his knees. He doesn't jump onto the piano. Even 10 years ago when he was doing that, I was afraid he was going to break his hip or something. But all right, I see we got uh, Steve is on the line about Gold Coast politics. Uh, Steve from the Gold Coast. Yes, I was about to say. No, it, doesn't, it isn't confined to the Gold Coast. All right, sure. In the city of Chicago in general. All right, how are you doing, Steve? Fine, fine. And I, and I do agree with your take on, shall we say, publicly funded stadiums and that sort of thing. I mean, no matter where this has happened, mm. there's never been demonstrated a, a case in which the, this has paid off for taxpayers. Right. Uh, I mean, you know, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars to build uh, these facilities for teams that are worth billions of dollars in many cases, some of them. And why in heaven's name do you need to subsidize? Uh, right. They got their own money. Yeah, exactly. for, if we're going to pay in public funds, I want a really fast load in. I don't want to miss any songs. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and let's face it. I mean, if it were anything else, we wouldn't care. But this is one of those things where, you know, it, it, it just, uh, our public school systems, our infrastructure, our research and development. No, no, those things I don't care about. But God, right. Chicago Bears should move from downtown Chicago to Arlington Heights. As if that's not going to make them the Chicago Bears anymore. Right. Or that I, I need to incentivize them to stay as opposed to funding those other things. Right. You I know, mean, I, they've, they've got their own money for this sort of thing. They don't really need public money for this. I mean, the, the Cubs used to threaten to move to Rosemont all the time. Uh, back in the right. 80s when uh, the city didn't want them, when the uh, neighborhood didn't want them to install the lights, they used to threaten to move to Rosemont all the time. And, of course, the Braves in Atlanta have moved out to Marietta now. Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, it's, it's these uh, large sports entities playing on this uh, relationship that uh, citizens of a particular city have with their sports teams as if it's somehow your children or something. Right. You know, I mean, it's not like your university. I'll, I'll give people some leeway. <laughs> I love my school. But, I mean, you know, I'm not going to give them a, a huge chunk of my money in order to build a sports stadium. And, this, and this idea that, oh, well, the Chicago Bears, the, the Chicago Bears are made up of people who basically got drafted in a certain <laughs> Round and because they uh, they agreed to terms in terms of a multi million dollar contract to play here in Chicago. Yes, I'm I'm so happy. I've always wanted to play for the Bears. And you know what? If they had signed with the New York Giants, then they would be making the same speech there or yep. San Diego or somewhere else. And and guess what? As soon as their contract is, expires and the Bears don't come to terms with them, they move on somewhere uh, somewhere else. I have no idea why people are so attached. Right. That was something I was very surprised to find out about when I was a kid, that all of the Chicago Bulls didn't actually live in Chicago, or very few of them oh, did, in fact. From Chicago? Yeah, exactly. They're not from yeah. Chicago, all of these things. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, people move on. But, right. Yeah, I, now, yeah. now and then you'll hear about a player like Tony Gwynn stayed with the Padres, even though the, he could have gotten more money someplace else. He gave him the hometown discount. That's the only one I can really think of offhand right now. Yeah, absolutely. And and with all due respect to, you know, I mean, Soldier Field and so forth, I mean, you know, we, it was a huge amount of taxpayer money that went into the rehab of that yeah. thing. It, it, looks like, it looks like this great classical building in, in which a giant flying saucer landed. Right, um, the, the UFO on top of the classical building. It's like Independence Day, right. remember that movie? 
Exactly. And, but more importantly, okay, let's just do a little bit of the math here. Okay, yeah, a season is, what, 17 games now? That was, this is back when it was 16. So we're in there, yeah. And, yeah, now, if you're lucky, about half of those games are played. That's eight okay, yeah. in Chicago. Okay, and it's not like we ever, we're ever going to get a Super Bowl or anything along those lines. Not, not at that stadium, no. Right, exactly. And that's, so exactly how in heaven's name did that make any sense? Um, you know, so for most of the year, it's not usable because it's an outdoor stadium. It's not like you're going to have a concert there in January. Mm. So what was the purpose? I mean, you know, I mean, how was that, you know, in terms of cost-benefit analysis? Explain that to me. So, yeah, I, like I said, I mean, it's to each his own. But, again, why do we need to subsidize billionaires? It's ridiculous. Right. You know, they've got, they've got their own money. These are profitable organizations. Um, and it's not like we. I really think they're going to move out of the Chicagoland area. There's money to be made for them in Chicago. I don't think they're going to. Um, build a massive stadium in Peoria necessarily. There's just right. not yeah, the people there. Right. It's the Chicago land area. It's still going to be here. I mean, it's, it, I understand the logic. It's near O'Hare Airport, so fans of other teams can fly in. There's plenty of hotels. The people from Chicago, especially the affluent northern and northwest suburban communities, can get to the stadium very easily. Yeah. Spend a lot of money. It can be a year-round facility. It can, be, it can host a lot of other things, you know, because of the huge footprint that that area of the, the racetrack used to, uh, used to occupy. So, yeah, I totally understand the economics of it. Sure, so, sure. You know, let, let's start, let, let them go, okay? Yeah, and, but let, them, let them pay for it themselves. Uh, yeah, well, hi, it, it's, it's the same logic, uh, you know, behind why people fight to somehow get the Olympic Games in their city. Where right. has there been an Olympic Games in which somebody says, oh, you know what, we came out ahead 10 years later? Oh, well, I can oh. tell you, it, uh, it, I was in Atlanta for the 96 Games. I got a job in the tennis parking lot, made $6 an hour, which was 75 cents more an hour than anybody else would pay me. So I came out ahead by about 600 bucks over the course of the well, Games. I'm sure you did. <laughs> Personally, and I wasn't old enough to pay too many taxes at the time. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks for, thanks for calling in, Steve. All right. Lady B over on the board. How are we doing so far? We're doing great. All right. <laughs> I'm trying to see if I have anything to, anything to call up. Um, one thing I saw in the news is uh, Elon Musk is now talking about building a company town outside of Austin. He's uh, been buying up land that's going to be uh, built uh, with, with input from Kanye West. Just who I want... Giving me input about living situations. This will be apparently be residential areas that he will rent at below market prices to his workers at the new facility in Austin. Uh, forgive me if I'm a little bit skeptical here. At this point, I'm not sure I would buy a used car from Mr. Musk, um, let alone a new one. Um, we've had we have a whole history of that kind of thing here in Chicago too. Company towns, you know, you know, there's a reason you don't hear much about company towns anymore. Of course, we had Pullman here in Chicago who built what is um, we, we kind of overlook the fact we made Pullman into such a villain. We do kind of overlook that his company town Pullman was really nice as company towns go. When he built that place, it was thought of as this grand progressive experiment. But then inevitably, he got just a little bit too paternalistic with it. He started, uh, you know, people were required to get their rent and utilities from him. Then in 1894, he cut everybody's salary, but didn't lower their rents. This led to massive strikes. Um, And at the end of it, the the, uh, neighborhood was absorbed into Chicago. It's now a really charming neighborhood, Pullman. I don't know how many people ever go down there and just wander around, but I think it's fantastic down there. Great old townhouses, great old architecture. You kind of feel like you're in a Charles Dickens novel walking around there. So. Uh, I'm a, I, I, I don't know all the sign language, Lady P. <laughs> we can take a break. We can take a break. All right, we're going to take a break. We will be right back here on Driving at Home on 820 AM WCPT. 
light at the end of the tunnel. Light at the end of this tunnel. That light at the end of the tunnel. Your guiding light. That light is going to get brighter and brighter. Through another day. I think it's a great day. The Joan Esposito Show. Live, local, and progressive. Weekday afternoons at 2 on WCPT 820. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Hi, folks. I'm Kirk Bankstead from the Monaco Brewing Company, and I sell progressive beer like AOC IPA and Bernie Brew, a lovingly irascible Democratic Socialist lager. A percentage of the proceeds of each can sold goes to keep Wisconsin blue and drive the MAGA cult out of our state. Enjoy a great craft beer and help your dysfunctional neighbor to the north get its democracy back. Now available at MP's Liquor and Wine in North Aurora, Taste Food and Wine in Rogers Park, as well as Uprising Bakery and Cafe in Lake in the Hills. Tell Karina we sent you. And drink responsibly. All right, welcome back to Driving at Home. I'm Adam Seltzer filling in for Patty Vasquez today. Um, yeah, I just had well, that, that Biden beer from Anakwa Brewery the other day. That's delicious. It's uh, very delicious. It's, it's not bitter, they say. <laughs> Biden beer is called. Uh, we got a text over here. Well, let me tell you, if you want to join in the conversation, call in and tell me where I can go <laughs> or whatever. Uh, that is 773-763-WCPT. That's 773-763-9278. And you can also text that number. I see we've got a few texts here. Uh, one person asks, why 50 aldermen? I'll vote for any candidate openly pushing to cut this number to be equal to L.A. Um, do they have aldermen in L.A.? Mm. It suddenly occurs to me, I don't know how many other cities have this. I usually explain to people on boat tours, if I mention an alderman, I'll say like an alderman is like the mayor of a neighborhood. Uh, to call it a neighborhood, the way that they've got the ward maps drawn out might be a little bit str- of a stretch. But... Um, there are 50 because we have 50 wards here. And that's about it, really. Um, we used to have two per ward. How'd you like that? So like back in the old days, back in uh, the 1800s, uh, that the story I was talking about in 1899 when uh, Carter Harrison was being portrayed as a Batman villain, uh, they didn't rightly point out that he was being supported by a couple of uh, the first ward aldermen, Bathhouse John Coughlin and Hinky Dink Kenna. And do those sound like uh, up on the level kind of guys to anybody? <laughs> it's not the kind of nickname you get. It's uh, not as bad as like if your nickname is like Honest Dan or something. I would never play a game of poker against Honest. Dan. But I also would not play one against Bathhouse John Coughlin. I am absolutely sure there will be death, there will be taxes, and Bathhouse John Coughlin is going to win that poker game. Um, so we used to have, we're down to just one per ward now, so we've at least cut it, we've at least cut it back. Let's see what else we got here over on the messages. Semper Fi from Gunny. All right, Semper Fi. Um, one thing I could rant about right now is uh, when I was on the way up to uh, up to Milwaukee for that concert, of course I stopped in Kenosha at the Cheese Castle. Uh, Lady B, you ever go to the Cheese Castle? No. You've never been to the Cheese Castle? It's, it is an experience going to the Cheese Castle. Um, but while there, not only do they have a selection of cheese, there is also this massive selection of strange flavors of pop. Uh, strange whiskeys, too. Uh, there was like a salted watermelon whiskey available, mm-hmm. which just I, I, they, I, I had a sample that tastes like a Jolly Rancher or something. Probably pretty good in a lemonade. But I got this uh, bottle of ranch soda flavor of ranch dressing flavored soda. It's by this company called Lester's Fish. 
fixins that uh, also has like mustard soda and sodas based on all of the various condiments and stuff. Every time I see one of these bottles, I just look at it like, you know what, Lester? I don't like you either. I just feel personally insulted that he has put these products out. And yet I paid two ninety nine for a bottle of ranch dressing soda. I got one sip into it. I don't like ranch dressing that much in its regular form. Um, adding uh, probably high fructose corn syrup to it did not help. It was kind of like a mildew flavored jelly bean. I got one sip into it. It was really good. I had some coffee. I didn't throw it out the window because that would not be legal. That would be littering. Uh, I've read there's only two things you can actually throw out the window of a moving car legally. Uh, One is water. And the other, you kind of have to think about it, but it makes sense once you realize it's feathers. Um, Of course, they do have to be detached from the chicken. Oh, yes. Uh, text comes in. I forgot the Kringle, the Danish coffee cake. Uh, yeah, they have that at the Cheese Castle as well. I also got some uh, King K flavored soda while I was there. I haven't had a chance to try that yet. But I loaded up. I really loaded up. I added some smoked mozzarella string cheese to my beef and noodles yesterday. Uh, regular Iron Chef over here. That's me. All right. What else have we got over here? Let's check out the, what's going on in the news elsewhere. Uh, Nikki Haley is saying that if we uh, keep Social Security going, we're just paying people money to sit on their couches. Uh, it really drives me crazy when they call Social Security an entitlement. I have been paying into that since I was 14. I have been paying into that since uh, four years before I could vote. Frankly, I'm still a little bit bitter about that as well. Uh, I've been paying into this. This isn't just a present that I'm expecting. Um, certainly, there will be people sitting on their couch, but once they get to that age, I think they've earned it. That's kind of the whole idea. So, all right, we got a call. Judy in Niles is on the line. Uh, Lady Beer, are you ready for her? Yes. All right. Judy, you're there? Hi, how are you? Pretty well. How are you doing, Judy? Good. I, I was telling Lady B a couple of weeks ago when I was ordering something from a catalog event. Anybody who knows me would tell you I talk a lot to anyone. Okay. This lady had to look some stuff up and. We got to talking, and we it came, the football players taking a knee came up. All right. I, the thing of it is, they weren't actually kneeling; they were genuflecting. Okay. So I, it was my contention that that used to be an obeisance, like the king. Right. Genuflect to the king, and you genuflect when you are knighted. Right. So if they had really wanted to insult people, they should have turned around and pulled down their drawers (laughs) (laughs) and ruined them. (laughs) That would make for some entertaining television, too, you know. Well, yeah, they're always making such a big deal out of wardrobe malfunction. Right. The lady showing you a tiny bit of boob. (laughs) And a whole lot better, especially from my perspective. I like men, you know, and these are... Young athletic guys, how bad? <laughs> Absolutely, you know. I, I kind of feel like maybe we'd all be a little more willing to throw taxpayer dollars into these new stadiums if we had more promises of hardcore nudity within the games. <laughs> yes. Maybe that's just me. <laughs> yeah, that would be. I like that. It, you know, Chicago is the kind of place that that thing can happen. Right, I would say so. Um, yeah, I've read some of their history too because my family's been here for three generations. Oh wow. Yeah, my my friend and I discussed that one time. We said we feel that culturally we are Chicagoans. And that, you know, if you're, no matter where we are, and they say, where are you from? The first thing that comes out of you is I'm from Chicago, not I'm an American that 
I'm from Illinois. I'm in Chicago, and I'm right. where you are. I'm sure Niles is right there, too. I don't yeah. know if, uh, how many listeners know about Ly- Niles has its own leaning tower. <laughs> yes, we do. The we leaning do. tower of Niles right there on Tui Avenue. It, it used to be, I guess, probably owned by the mob. There were a whole lot of statues and fountains and stuff in there. Sure. Yeah, I don't know what ever if they, you know, if any of them were bought off or sold off. It's probably to be assumed. It was made. I believe they made that back in the 1930s. Yeah. Yeah, so. it's like a speakeasy kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we have a lot of urban legends about speakeasies in Chicago. Like every other place is said to have been a speakeasy. It's very yeah. difficult to know for sure because naturally these speakeasies did not keep particularly good paperwork. Well, but at the same time, know, half the time it probably is true, know, at least. That's why you whispered. Right. <laughs> yeah. I used to ride by it before they had done anything with it. Coming home from DePaul, and uh, you know, I'd look in there, and I, a lot of the kids that I had met after I moved out here would say, "Well, they'd all snuck in there, you know, and sure. screwing around by the in in and out of the fountains that were not working, but they probably had some water in them if you'd had some rain." Right. Yeah, but then you know, I, it finally got bought up and. All kinds of things like Costco and all that stuff are all. Oh, everything is everything is grown up around there. The Target is right there. There's an Aldi right there. Um, all kinds of stuff. And I guess they got the bells ringing again in it now. Yeah, I think I've heard they had, but I, I'm not sure. But they they had to do like the real one, right? They had to kind of balance it up again. They had to redo it so it didn't actually fall over. Yeah, I like that they have the, the what used to be a phone booth is also leaning. Really? Yeah, there's this little uh, thing out front that, that that's like metal, like the European outdoor yeah. phone booths. Sure. Yeah. That's also leaning at the same angle. <laughs> okay, I will have to go check that out. It's only so often you see a phone booth anymore. Yeah, and I, I guess our other city is Pisa. Yeah, one of our sister cities. One of our, one of uh, maybe the Nile sister city. <laughs> yeah. All right, excellent. I've, I've always got, you know, I've never been really clear on what sister cities do exactly. No, I don't know either. <laughs> I guess if I go to Pisa, I get something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get a Pisa pizza or something. Right, ten per, ten percent off at the uh, the Pisa McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Well, all right, Judy, thanks for calling in. Thank you. I always wanted to tell somebody that story. All right. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Judy. Nice talking to you. All right, once again, if you would like to join in the conversation here, I'm Adam Seltzer, a Chicago historian and tour guide filling in for Patty Vasquez, who is off on the road in Cleveland. Um, The number to call or the number to text, 73763-WCPT. That's 773-763-9278. We've got a break coming up right here uh, here on the hour. That's going to be coming up in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1... You're the only voice of reason on the radio. You give me hope. Having listened to you every day. Thank you for your clear insight. Always felt a little bit smarter. I listen to you every single day. I keep coming back to this station, and thank you for what you do. On WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. Driving it home. 
Try this again. Turn your dial for a while to the voice with a smile. A-D-A-M marks the spot. 820 on your radio dot. Uh, this is Rad Ad Seltzer sticking uh, uh, coming in for Patty Vasquez, who is off in Cleveland. Uh, welcome again to the Driving at Home show. I am joined in the studio now by the author James Kleis, who has a new novel out this week. It's uh, this week, right? Uh, it came out last week, actually. Last week. Okay. Well, it's, it's still new this week. It's still new, Adam. And you, as you know, there's nothing more fun than having a new book to talk about. Oh, yeah. Fun. <laughs> Definitely not <laughs> horrifying and nerve-wracking in any way. Uh, but the book is called I'll Take Everything You Have. It is about a 16-year-old in 1934 Chicago who gets involved in all sorts of capers after discovering the queer underbelly of the city. I feel like a lot of people would be surprised that there was a, such a queer underbelly in Chicago in the 1930s. Absolutely. I, I mean, in addition to being a writer, I'm a high school librarian here in Chicago and have been for 20 years. As part of that work, I lead their Gay Straight Alliance. All right. And I can't tell you how many young teenagers I've met uh, that uh, believe that queer visibility and queer community and queer history begins with Stonewall. Right. And so uh, part of what motivated me to tell this story was just to um, try to... Uh, Turn on some lights in history, as you do in your in your in your work, um, about the fact that there were other times through history when when queer people uh, formed communities and uh, found each other and and gained some some power um, until until that was taken away. Right, right. There are really quite a few that were fairly well known even in Chicago. Like the uh, the Cozy Cabin Inn down in Bronzeville <laughs> was a black drag club in the 1930s. They would advertise in the Tribune, uh, featuring impersonators. Uh, they, they they build themselves as the oddest nightclub in town. And I imagine they probably seemed like it to people in 1934. But there were quite a lot around there. And your book, they spend a lot of time in Tower Town. Yes. So the, the sort of uh, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned Bronzeville. So my understanding of queer history in the city of Chicago is that it really began down in Bronzeville and then moved farther north to the Levy District. And over time, over mm-hmm. all these decades, has moved farther and farther north. Now, by the, the 19, uh, late 20s and early 30s, that area around uh, Newberry Library and mm-hmm. the Water Tower was was uh, was by no means a wealthy area. It was the area where the people that Bohemian people could afford rent. Right. And so that is where the community, uh, the queer community found each other and um, could be, you know, met each other. Sure. Yeah. There's one I talk about quite a lot. It was about a decade before your book. There was a place called the Wind Blue Inn with two ends. That's right. That I just love talking about. I wrote it into a novel a while ago. It was uh, run by a teenage flapper named Lillian Colley. And the cops used to raid the place all the time, partly because of rumors that she was serving booze under the table, which she absolutely was. That's right. I mean, the, the tea cost 75 cents in 1922 <laughs> money. That, that's really expensive tea. But uh, mostly they were rating it because of rumors that she was hosting petting parties, uh-huh. along with a woman described as her aide, Virginia. Yeah. Um, eventually, the cops raided the place, hauled everybody in, and uh, either Lillian or Virginia told the judge, Your Honor, we solemnly swear there is no snuggle pupping at the Wind Blue Inn. <laughs> and that is my favorite word ever now, snuggle pupping. Yeah. Uh, one who enjoyed it was a snuggle puppy. Yeah. I actually saw a person with a snuggle puppy T-shirt a while ago. I don't know if it I was actually it had, a reference to this. I wonder. Right. Um, 
I, I, I'd like to think that it was. Well, there's any number of things that it could be all equally valid. Um, the, um, the judge sentenced them to read a book of fairy tales to cure them of their feminist ideals. Wow. And it, it might have worked on Virginia. About a month later, she torched the wind blew in and married a bank robber huh? and went off to California to rob banks. I, I've asked Lillian's son if he had any insight as to whether she and Lillian were more than friends. He said he didn't know for sure, but it would explain a lot. Yeah, Right. That's interesting. I've heard about The Wind Blew In before. There's a wonderful book that was just published last fall. I wish I could remember the name of it, but it was published by Rick Carlin and Suki De La Croix, all about, it's a compendium of all the queer spaces that they can identify through Chicago history. Right. And um, that, of course, was not available when I, when I worked on my book, but I, I was able to find you know, uh, a number of references and then ended up sort of making up. Uh, sort of my, the queer spaces in my book are uh, imagined, but based on on, on real places. Right, right. So the the up and up is one in your book. Yeah, the up and up so. is, a, is a corner place, and another place called Vi's Little Grapevine that is um, uh, sort of a, a, a sort of a, a, a hopping place, and uh, based on a place called Waldman's that was on uh, okay. Michigan Avenue. Uh, so. Yeah. It's hard to imagine that there was just this kind of entertainment on Michigan Avenue to begin with now. I mean, it's now all like flagship retail stores. Yeah, that's right. But in, in until like in the 20s, late 20s and early 30s, uh, even straight uh, couples and, and young people would frequent these what they called pansy parlors mm-hmm. in the same way that um, bachelorette parties these days would go to, <laughs> would go to the baton to get a little sort of a sense of naughtiness uh, as part of the bachelorette party. Uh, and... And uh, I think that until the, until 1934, there was a, there was a greater acceptance of sort of that naughty entertainment. I mean, right. it hadn't it, become a political football yet. That's right. That's right. It's even the it's even when you think about you know 34 was the second year of the uh, the Century of Progress World's Fair, and that was that was the year of of Sally Rand, Sally Rand. and her scandalous act. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, when I first started doing tours in Chicago. Uh, this would have been like the mid two thousands, early to mid two thousands. So I still got people on my tours pretty regularly who remembered the nineteen thirty three and thirty four fair. Yeah, and they were very old now, and they were very little back then. So most right. they remembered like riding on their daddy's shoulders a lot. Sure, but I noticed all two, almost all of them remember the same two th- things. They all remembered puking on the midway. <laughs> I heard that a lot. Apparently, there was some kind of donut available cheap on the midway that kids were eating way too much of. Right, right. And they all remember their fathers got in a lot of trouble for going to see Sally Rand, the fan dancer. That's right. And That's Sally Rand would, would uh, if those not familiar, there was she was a dancer who would wear nothing but hold up a couple of strategically placed large feathers while she was dancing. That's right. And there's there's film footage of her out there doing it. I don't think it's. I think it was filmed years later. She was still doing it, like into the 1970s. I think. I wonder if, uh, and if, I think I've heard that same thing. But I wonder if she would be able to get away with that act even in 1935. I mean, based yeah. based on my understanding of 34 and how sort of the government and politicians and the Catholic Church and all these groups sort of had their nationwide crackdown on on what they considered. You know, licentious or uh, what they called smut, whether it be in motion pictures or in entertainment or in neighborhoods. um, I'd be I wonder if Sally Rand would be able to get away with that act by 35, because 34 was a big cleanup uh, across the board. I wonder if she could get away with it in Florida right now. As a that's right. <laughs> that's, that's something we should cover in a in a minute. Uh, well, let's let's jump right into it. You know, there's a lot of things. Uh, Ron DeSantis says we're not really banning books in Florida. Here's the facts, and really the facts just say we're just banning the books we don't like. That's right. Uh, is that a concern for you with this book? 
I mean, it's a concern. Uh, I think it's a concern for every book that a writer uh, is writing with queer characters. But I mean, one of the things that's concerning is that, you know, a lot of uh, rather than being able to talk about our books, we have to talk about Ram DeSantis, right. which is uh, <laughs> which is uh, particularly annoying. But yeah. um, I will say, I mean, as you know, it's it's more important to me as an educator and a librarian. I mean, uh, I don't know if you saw that Pen America report that came out fairly recently, but it was looking at. Uh, 2021, and I think there were 2,500 official challenges to books, uh, representing over 2,000 different titles, 1,300 different authors. I mean, this is this is completely unusual in in, you know in terms of the work I've been doing over the last 20 years. It used to be that book challenges were sort of. sporadic and, and very sort of random and now it's heavily coordinated uh, right. and really motivated to pander to that far right uh, voting block. Right. Now, I've, I've seen it a long time. If you Google you know, when, I, when my books were first coming out I would still tell people Google Gwinnett County, Georgia, Harry Potter. Yeah. But the school where the place where I went to high school was the last place to do major challenges saying that Harry Potter was promoting Satanism. And it got just out of control. And when I was there, they were trying to ban the basketball diaries on the grounds that it glamorized drug use. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've read the basketball diaries. They must have a really different idea of glamour than I do. Mm-hmm. Waking up in puddles of urine doesn't strike me as glamorous. <laughs> um, I mean, there's something to be said for it, sure, but it's not glamorous. That's right. By any means. Um, and what, what I found out was that they had definitely not actually read this book. It wasn't the point. It wasn't about what was in the book. It was just them trying to establish control. Right. Uh, it wasn't really about the content. It was just about their own power. And it fell apart when one, one of them moved away, as I recall. Yeah. Now, my first book, there was um, about 2009, a couple of years after it came out, there was a challenge to it in Nampa, Idaho, uh, based on uh, some... Artwork on the cover, some abstract art on the cover, and the gratuitous use of a certain synonym for the buttocks. Mm-hmm. That is uh, common on every playground. <laughs> but it was uh, it must have been a slow news week in Boise because it made all of the news there. That's it right. Is, and, you know, there's a bit of controversy among authors now as to whether we should consider this a badge of honor or not. And, you know, badge of honor is a, a loaded term, but I will say it's the best publicity I ever had for that book. Oh, that's great. It's probably the only publicity I ever had for that Yeah. Book. Again, I, I would say that it's... I, I don't know that it has ever helped me. My uh, my first book has been removed from libraries, and uh, and it certainly does that does not increase uh, awareness of the book. Uh, it means again that in interviews I have to talk about that rather than talking about you know the story that I worked on and that you know. Um, uh, so uh, yeah, I think that I think that it's a bit of a myth that uh, that a book challenge it helps to to sell copies of books. All right. Um, well, 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 let's talk about the book itself. Uh, tell us what it's about. So, uh, I'll take everything you have. Is it? It's a, again, it's a coming of age crime story set in '34. My main character is a 16 year old from Central Illinois, which is where I'm from originally. Uh, he's from a farm where he lives with his widowed mother. Uh, and it's for for people who know that part of that year, uh, it was an infamous year for heat and for drought. Uh, it was a particularly hard year on farmers. And so, uh, Joe, there's just uh, there's a, at one point he says, you know, we all wanted to work hard, but Mother Nature would not meet us half halfway. <laughs> so his mother puts him on a train and sends him up to Chicago just to earn any money he can. Um, he, he's got a cousin who's been in Chicago for about a year, and uh, his cousin gets him a job in a hotel kitchen at an imaginary hotel that I made up uh, in the South Loop called the Lago Vista. 
And uh, at that job uh, in 1934, Joe was able to make about $9 a week. Um, so by the time he goes back home, he's, he thinks he's going to have about 50 bucks. And uh, he tells his cousin that's, that's not enough. Uh, so the cousin, cousin sets him up with um, uh, a fairly minor criminal scheme that leads to some some deadly consequences and, right. and gets Joe into a sort of much deeper situation. Yeah, there's um, uh, early on he makes a couple of extra bucks by doing a mind reading trick. That's in right. The kitchen. And do you explain how they do that trick? Yeah, it's it's called. Uh, we used to do, we used to do it when we were in Scouts. Uh, yeah. It's called that old black magic. Have you heard about this trick? I I've, I remember seeing variations on it. I thought I knew how he was doing it, reading it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think the great one of the great brain books. Yes. Like mental marvel. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, sort of. A, it's sort of. A, it's a way that you can trick people uh, if you, as long as you're working with a partner. Right, and you've uh, had time to memorize a few things. That's know. right. A few yeah. Words. Yeah, well, no, actually, it doesn't. Oh, it just. Wow. It's just as long as you point to something black before you point to the item. That's how the the person knows. Okay. You guys have to read the listeners will have to read the book to sure, yeah. to, to to understand how it works. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's what what was interesting. I mean, just on that earlier topic of of sort of book challenges, you know, which which seem, um, you know, when I was working on the novel, I was I was just trying to write an entertaining story and 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 to try to sort of respond to my students who who think that queer history began at Stonewall, um, and 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 I wanted you know to students who I had a student say to me about ten years ago, you know, it must have been so romantic and exciting to be gay way back when everything was a secret, mm-hmm. right? And I, I knew what they meant, yeah. but I, I, I thought they don't, they don't know what the cost of that invisibility is, right? right? It could be thrilling and romantic at times, sure, but um, it also left queer communities extremely vulnerable. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, when I think about uh, when I was working on, you know, when I was writing the, the first draft a few years ago, I, 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 to me, it was just sort of an entertaining story. And now that, you know, there are so many coordinated um, and effective challenges uh, to books uh, with queer representation um, uh, and, and sort of that threatening to return to a time where, where you know, queer kids are, are invisible in their schools and in their, in their families. Uh, it, it does seem to have a sort of a newfound resonance. All right. I'm, I'm getting some text messages that I'm sounding muffled. Should I uh, move in a little bit? All right, we're going to be taking a break here for a second. We'll figure all of that stuff out. We'll be right back here on Driving It Home with, uh, I'm Adam Seltzer. With me is James Kleis and Lady B over on the board. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Hi, folks. I'm Kirk Bankstead from the Monopoly Brewing Company, and I sell progressive beer like AOC IPA and Bernie Brew, a lovingly irascible Democratic Socialist lager. A percentage of the proceeds of each can sold goes to keep Wisconsin blue and drive the MAGA cult out of our state. Enjoy a great craft beer and help your dysfunctional neighbor to the north get its democracy back. Now available at MP's Liquor and Wine in North Aurora, Taste, Food and Wine in Rogers Park, as well as Uprising Bakery and Cafe in Lake in the Hills. Tell Karina we sent you. And drink responsibly. All right, we are back with Driving at Home. I'm Adam Seltzer, filling in for Patty Vasquez today. With me is James Kleis, an author of the new book, I'll Take Everything You Have. Uh, today is March 10th, which in a certain subculture is known as Mario Day. Did you know that? I've never heard it of it. It's Mario Day. It's Mar 1-0. If you write that out, it looks like <laughs> Mario. So people who are fans of the Super Mario franchise have a minor holiday online now. It's, it's kind of like May the 4th be with you on May 4th. That's right. And, or, or Festivus. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when I first saw 
saw Super Mario Brothers. I first saw an arcade version at a Fuddruckers in Minneapolis. It was a really random thing to remember. But at the time, I thought it was an arcade game. Arcade games were always so much better than the home games at the time. But then the next door neighbor got the first Nintendo on the block that had Super Mario Brothers. And it was just, I was blown away by this thing. <laughs> I've never once played Mario You've Brothers. You've never once I don't played want to shock Mario you. Brothers. No, I'm not a big video. I, I, my video game years start, stopped in about 1982. Ah, uh, so Mrs. Pac-Man and Centipede and Space yeah. Invaders. Yeah, I still had you know I, I still had Atari long after most kids had switched to Nintendo. <laughs> myself, and I still I still I still get it out now and then. In college, I got absolutely hooked on this Atari game called Midnight Magic. It was a pinball game. I got so hooked on it that I eventually mailed the cartridge to myself. So I didn't want to get rid of it, but I needed to get it out of my house. For for a couple of days. So I just let it cycle through the mail for a little while. And that, that was effective. It broke the addiction. I was going to say, that sounds like true addiction, Adam. Yeah. I'm glad you, I'm glad you conquered that. <laughs> so in your book, there's a character who is always reading items out of the news at the breakfast table. Are How many of these are real items that you found in the 1934 newspapers? Every one of them was, was something I found in the newspaper. It's funny. I, I was, you know, that's one of the things when you're writing a, a, a historical novel, you're, you're, you're drawing on so many different sources that can be helpful in, in letting you see the, see the time and and, and um, for me, one of the things that was most helpful as I was working on that first draft was I was just reading the Chicago Tribune from every day that summer, yeah. which, you know, anybody with the Chicago Public Library card can do. Mm -hmm. uh, there are so many great databases. And um, and my eye was just drawn to so many tragedies. And and I guess in a way that that my eye is, you know, I read the newspaper every day nowadays, and there are just as many, you know, horrible stories in them, but um, we become numb to them, right? right. And uh, as I was looking at the, as I was reading them, and, and I thought, oh, you know, the, uh, the, you know, my character and his cousin are staying with an older woman who's sort of their landlady. And uh, I just thought, she might be one of those people whose eye is drawn to just those most lurid, tragic tales that you might see in the newspaper. Right. And, and sort of by introducing them up front, uh, when we first meet her, uh, that will be a signal to the reader that uh, this is a story that might... You know, where the characters might end up with a little blood on their hands and on their clothes. Right. Yeah. So, so with, without spoiling anything, George Drummond, was that a real news story? Uh, you know, uh, yes and no. I okay. mean, there, there were aspects of that story that were new. There, there, there actually were quite a few... Uh, uh, Film project uh, projectorists uh, who were murdered that summer. Yeah, there uh, were there were quite a few unions that summer that were having issues like that. Yeah, a lot of the gangsters. Now the prohibition was over; they needed to find new ways to make money. That's right. And they were trying all kinds of stuff: bank robberies, uh, kidnapping people without checking to see if they were popular enough that anyone would pay to get them back. Yes. <laughs> and yeah, a lot of things with the, the unionization ended up being a really big one too. There was a lot of money to be made if you were crooked in yeah. that field. You know, what's interesting is as a, as a gay man now reading the newspaper from back then and looking for representation of queer life in newspapers, I mean, the place that you're most likely to find it is, is in the crime page, uh, in crime stories. Quite right? likely, yeah. Uh, and they're usually very sort of coded, you know, mm -hmm. like uh, a man on Belmont Avenue was, you know, uh, 
was somehow uh, abducted by by two very handsome men and you know and was beaten and then left and and had you know somebody called the police and I'm like and but it's never revealed in the story of what that scenario was right but the scenario does not make sense mm. unless there's a queer angle there right? right and I found that to be really interesting too. yeah just now and then I will find stories where it's still kind of coded but very clearly coded there was a woman in the very early 20th century named uh, Viola Larson she was a young woman who wanted to be a writer and she was always making the news by doing things like um, she would steal a team of horses so she could get arrested and go to jail just so she could write about it or that's what she'd say but later on if you read further <laughs> into the articles you'd also there was often another angle that she was trying to impress a girl that she had a crush on ah there we go and they still had to kind of code it but th- that was one I did find out she disappeared from the news eventually but then she popped up again in the 1950s when she was the famous Chicago dog lady who rescued stray dogs and won humanitarian medals and according to the census lived with a woman who was her roommate right right so I love it when we get a happy ending to stuff like that's this that's right that's a rare happy ending yeah. I'm glad things worked out well for her yeah more often they just kind of well, at least they don't get convicted of murder but they disappear off of the record that's right that's one right of the, one of the biggest stories I followed recently from a newspaper find there was a woman uh, named Frances Carrick in 1923 uh, there had been a murder in an alley on Kenmore and they brought in the widow they kept bringing in suspect after suspect and everyone they brought in she would shout that's her that's the woman who killed my husband so everyone who every single one they got a hot tip that it was this woman Frances Carrick who ran a disorderly house but was very popular in the neighborhood mm-hmm. so they brought her in they were giving her the third degree all day and then at the end of the night they noticed she was growing whiskers Ah. And uh, initially they were saying, ah, this is just a man who dresses up as a woman so he can commit crimes and be undetected. And all the neighbors said, no, she's a woman. We talk to her all the time. And this became a bit of a media story. There's a lot of pictures of her. She, um, This was before most of the terms we would use now or even the last generation of terms even existed. So it's hard to know what term she would prefer. But we do know that she preferred she, her uh, pronouns. Right. And the police thought they had hit the jackpot here because they knew that this was a high-profile murder committed by a woman. They never managed to convict women of murder in Chicago. In this case, they thought, ah, we can definitely convict this person, whether there's any evidence of it or not. They weren't picky about that. But she became a bit of a celebrity. She was acquitted. And it's really interesting reading the coverage because this sort of thing hadn't become enough of a political football yet. People were kind of puzzled, but after about a day, they said, okay, well, I guess she's a woman, and started using she, her pronouns. Uh, the judge ruled that her marriage to a man was valid. That's a, that kind of a groundbreaking fascinating. case. Yeah, there's wonderful there, pictures and, of her, too. Has there been a book written about her? I there's a like chapter about a, of a book that has been written about her. Um, I've got a, a, it's, it's a pinned tweet on my Twitter feed right now that I, did, I posted as long of a story as I could on it. Because a lot of the pictures of her have not been digitized. Yeah. I got a lot of the good ones out of the microfilm room. Yeah. And that's it, still a good adventure every time I go to the microfilm room. You never know what you're going to find. Yeah. Is that from Jim Elledge's book, The Boys of Fairytown? Yes, I believe it is. Yeah, yeah. That's a terrific, yeah. fascinating book about queer Chicago history. Right. And yeah. we, you know, there's, there's stories like that. You, you run into them all over the place. Yeah. But you, as you said, it's kind of coded, so they don't always uh, say exactly what's going on. That's right. That's right. All right. Let me check and see if we got any more text here. 
Uh, nobody else saying I'm sounding muffled, I don't think. So at least that's progress. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I might have me, me muffled. I went and got my first round of allergy shots yesterday. Mm. Uh, I understand that there are people in this world who do not walk around feeling like they've got a cold all the time. <laughs> and I want to join the ranks of those people. I'm a little skeptical that it actually exists. But I, I went and got my test. I got my first shot yesterday. And you know, I, I am always a chicken around shots. I, every year, I, every time I go for a flu shot, I'm like, this year, I'm not going to be a chicken. I'm just going to go in. It's not as bad as when my cat climbs up my back every day anyway. But as soon as they break out the needle, I'm like, oh, here we go. That's right. This this one, I was like cringing for it. And then she said, okay, I'm done. I didn't feel a thing. But it turns out when they inject you with a bunch of your allergens, you can have allergic reactions <laughs> to that. So I have been walking around definitely feeling it so far. I hope it's not like this for a day or so every week after I get these shots. Um, okay, text comes in, says, Adam sounds great now. Yeah. Fantastic. And Adam, think of the results. I mean, in another day, you'll, you'll join the rest of us who walk around feeling fine all year long. Do you really? I mean, except for in September when I have to take a Claritin D every single day. Oh, okay. Day. That's, that's just wild to me. I mean, I've had a chronic sinus infection since I was 14. Mm-hmm. So I walk around uh, coughing like crazy all the time. It's got a little better recently. I've been on a couple of pills, plus a humidifier I think has helped. But as, as soon as any time like a bird flu or a pandemic starts up and it says one of the symptoms is coughing, I'm like, oh, here we go. <laughs> every time I'm at the coffee shop, people are going to come up and give me a lecture about germs. Right. So, yes, That's I went right. to preschool before World War I, so I'm not familiar with the germ theory of disease. That's right. <laughs> and yeah, this, uh, that's, that's certainly been a thing. Um, let me see what else I got on my list to discuss here. You know, one of the things that was so uh, interesting to me as I was researching this, this book uh, and, uh, you know, thinking about this character and what sort of money he might want, right, and how much. You know, he's making $9 a week at this, in this hotel kitchen, but he says to his cousin that he wants, you know, he'd like to get $500, which to, you know, a contemporary yeah, reader doesn't seem like too much. That's at least a year's salary to uh, well, a regular worker at the time. And for a young person, I mean, he's, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a 16 year old, you know, he's, he'd like to go to college. Uh, and in, in, and in 1934, the university of Illinois, and this is something I think a lot of us forget. The university of Illinois did not charge tuition. Really? Uh, so for, for state residents, it was hmm. completely free. Uh, room and board might cost, uh, you know, Right, well, $300 I'm, I'm going to the break it up sign, so we're going to go to a break. We'll be right back here on Driving at Home. I'm Adam Seltzer. With me is James Klaas. Sorry, Lady B. Jonas Pazito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs, is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at ComEd.com slash clean energy. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. Can't call into the show? Now you can text Patty at the same number you use to call us. 773-763-9278. Thanks to our texting sponsor, Camp Kupugani. Register today at multiculturalcamp.com. 773-763-9278. All right, welcome back to Drive It at Home with Patty Vasquez. I'm Adam Seltzer, filling in for Patty today while she is in Cleveland. I am joined by James Kleis, author of the new book, I'll Take Everything You Have. Really cool, uh, queer caper in 1934 Chicago. I really enjoyed reading it. And you, you mentioned it was such a hot summer that year. I've noticed in pictures of like theater marquees, like the Biograph Theater from the day that Dillinger was shot, they're advertising the air conditioning more than they're advertising the movies that we're showing there. That's right. Every 
every movie theater, every picture house downtown would have a big sign saying "air cooled." Like that was the that was the phrase. And in restaurants, in in movie theaters, uh, yeah, because mo- you know the average person didn't have air conditioning in their home, right? You know, the theaters were probably the cooler place. And certainly in the case of the movie that was showing at the Biograph the day Dillinger was shot, was one called Manhattan Melodrama. That's right. And frankly, the air conditioning is a much better draw than the movie itself. <laughs> have you seen it? I have seen the movie. It opens with uh, little Mickey Rooney being orphaned in the Eastland disaster, uh-huh. or something very much like the Eastland disaster. So you get a long shot of him crying that he's an orphan now. Then he's taken in by a guy who was promptly trampled by a horse in a labor uprising. So you get another long shot of Mickey Rooney crying that he's an orphan now. That's right. um, uh, to paraphrase Oscar Wilde, one would have to have a heart of stone to watch it and not laugh. <laughs> it's, and then it, become, it becomes a gangster picture. It's very difficult. You know, there's, there's a lot of uh, theories that it wasn't really Dillinger that they shot, and, you know, as there always is. When, you know, these, these assassinations are such an affront to normalcy that there are always theories. Uh, one of the more convincing arguments is could we really imagine, when the FBI agents were going in and out of that theater to make sure he was still there, could Dillinger really have been so riveted by this movie that he wouldn't have noticed? Right. That is compelling. But, and yet well, there compelling, was, I don't know, but it's, uh, it sounds compelling on paper anyway. There were, were pretty big crowds, though, right? There I mean, were big after crowds. they shot him, big crowds, and uh, a lot of people sort of saw him on the, on the pavement. Um, yeah, so, and uh, on the slab, too. Yeah, and he was one of the most famous men in America at that time. He was. So he was hard public to enemy that. number one. That's right. Until, uh, I think, Babyface Nelson became that, that after that. He, well, was, he, he, got, was, he got shot later that year. Yeah, so. he was up in Skokie. I, I traced the place where they would have found him. It took, there were a lot of different newspaper articles. That one took a couple of days, but it's yeah. right where the Skokie Mart is now. Yeah. Right I mean, where you can go to buy pizza pockets. That was one of the things that was so interesting to me as I was sort of researching this, this year of 1934, which I chose because it was the year that the mayor decided to close down all the sort of pansy parlors and queer mm-hmm. culture. But then I realized it was part of a much bigger effort to sort of clean up corruption. Not just Dillinger and, and Babyface Nelson got, got killed that year, but that was the year that uh, Pretty Boy Floyd got killed and Bonnie and Clyde. And, I mean, it was, it, was, it was the FBI saying, we have got to put a, like, clean up crime uh, in a way that um, was very public and, right. and, and, and making the, the headline news every day that I mm-hmm. thought. And also was the year that the sort of the, the Hollywood and the Catholic Church said we need to clean up movies. Right. And, and they, they instituted the Hayes Code that, that sort of suddenly put a whole new set of restrictions of what motion pictures could show uh, just in terms of, of in terms of blood and violence and sex and nudity and, and all sorts of yeah, things. Yeah, you do occasionally see a movie with nudity from before then. That's right. And, and, and it's amazing to me how long that Hayes Code stuck. Yeah. I mean, it was a long time before movies could sort of um, go back to a little bit more freedom of what they showed. Right. You know, one of, one of my favorite bits of trivia is, you know who the first person to use the F-bomb in a major motion picture was? I assume it was Jack Nicholson. In some it, was, it was Bob Dylan in 1967 in Don't Look Back, a documentary. Huh. But virtually a tie with Marianne Faithful in a movie called I'll Never Forget What's-His-Name. Mm-hmm. I love the history of dirty words. Wait, wait was it Marianne Faithful who used the F-bomb? Yeah. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, so she would she will occasionally claim credit for it, but it's basically a tie with Bob Dylan. But one of those rock stars, anyway. <laughs> um, 
leave it to the rockers to, to make their own rules. Yep, yep. And I'm, I often get sidetracked by like trying to figure out what the rules were in the 1920s. Like on Broadway, there was a rule you could have nudity on stage in Broadway as long as the people didn't move. If they were standing there like statues, <laughs> they could be completely naked and it was fine. If they moved, then you were in trouble. Yeah, I'd love to see so that So you see like the, like the Ziegfeld Follies and stuff. Uh-huh. So, all right, on the line one, we have got Andy and Evanson who wants to chat with us a bit about the history of graffiti. Is he still there? Yeah. Andy, how you doing? Good. I'm fine. Good evening. <laughs> Good uh, evening. A couple topics I would love to, to chat about. One is, uh, since you have such a, a uh, fabulous historical perspective, the old Granada Theater, which I... I'm old, so I remember the Granada, and I just shudder every time I drive by uh, that corner and see that monstrous modern building Uh, where that beautiful theater used to stand. But the other thing I wanted to to bring up as a topic is graffiti. I live in Evanston. I work in Bridgeport, and every day... Twice a day, I drive down the Edens to the Kennedy to the Dan Ryan to Bridgeport. And the graffiti that has been going up for the last year has been amazingly bad. (laughs) I don't know what to to think of it. I mean, I know it goes on everywhere. It goes on in, in many, many cities around the globe, but uh, I just don't know what to make of it. Um, nowadays, just don't know. <laughs> just don't know how to graffito tag anymore. It's it's not a... I'm sorry, it's not artistic, it's not creative, it's not innovative, imaginative, it's just... I don't know, defamation, but maybe I'm just turning into an old, old codger and can't appreciate it. So if you guys can maybe turn me around, I'll be happy to to listen to what your perspective on that might be. All right. I'd have to see some of that Bridgeport graffiti, of course. You know, graffiti, of course, goes back forever. They found graffiti all over the walls in Pompeii. That's right. And they'd be about what you'd expect, like so-and-so pooped here. Or here at this hotel, you didn't provide us with chamber pots, so we all wet our beds. (laughs) (laughs) It's just exactly what you'd expect. And I think, uh, imagine there was a growth in graffiti in the 20th century, just as more writing implements became easily available. And spray paint, of course. And, of course, there's uh, people talk about like a whole graffiti renaissance in New York in the 1970s when people were able to paint entire trains on the subway. The whole end-to-end worm was a really big deal the first time that happened. So this has been going on quite a bit, and, of course, now we've had such a movement for more murals all over the city, uh, taking up a lot of the space mm-hmm. that people might otherwise just tag the wall. Sometimes they tag the murals, too. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a whole expert on the history of graffiti. But it goes. It's, it always goes on. Now, where was the Granada Theater exactly? Oh, the Granada Theater. Yes, the Granada Theater was of Devon on Broadway, right in the uh, the Loyola University area. Okay. It was a spectacular theater. Sadly, I only got to attend a few blues concerts there in the 1960s, but 
when I think back what a magnificent theater that was and occasionally you'll see some photos of it but it was just a phenomenal place Uh, who'd you see there do you remember uh, well, yeah, Long John Baldry. Um, oh, oh, come on. The names are, are blanking out and see the performers. And, you know, part of it was towards one of the students, poor college students walking. Uh, Andy, I'm afraid we might be losing you. You sound like a, a scratchy old 78 right now. Uh, it's a matter of walking into the theater and walking into this blue cloud of smoke so that as I walked out of there, I was absolutely stoned without <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Well, Andy, thanks for giving us a call. Thank I, sh- you. I share Andy's nostalgia for old theaters. A friend just sent me a book about the Garrick Theater. Have you seen that gorgeous? That I haven't seen the book, no. It's a beautiful hardcover book that, that uh, goes into the history of that Louis Sullivan masterpiece uh, that was down in the loop and torn down in the uh, in the 70s. I we we, we I, lost our heads in the 70s gosh, with a lot sure of these did. buildings. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. My friend uh, Layla is uh, gathering notes for a book on the Chicago Theater. Oh, uh, she's been in their archives day after day founding all kinds of fantastic stuff they've had drives where they wrote had people like write in to tell their favorite memories of the theater and uh, yeah i love poking around those yeah, places i look um, forward to that book yeah yeah uh, one of my favorite things i ever found on a ghost hunt my my what back i used to run the run work for the ghost tour companies i still do them occasionally um and i love going getting to go on ghost hunts because you get to poke around these old buildings whether you expect to see a ghost or not you're apt to find all kinds of cool stuff and in the nederlander theater up in the organ loft like behind a safety sign there were four lip prints on the wall the graffiti sign and dated from like 1936. I, I looked up who was there that week. It was a, there was a, a dance troupe called the Dancing Sweethearts. <laughs> that could only have been the people whose uh, lip prints are still there. By then, it would have been about 80 years later. I think we can all approve of that kind of graffiti. That's fantastic. Oh yeah, especially if it's hidden away, where it's just kind of a surprise when somebody sees it. Yeah. Yeah, well, Andy's put out a, a challenge to the local graffiti artists that they need to up their yeah, game. Yeah, up your game, guys. Come on. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Tagging's one thing and all, but get a little bit creative with it at least. That's right. I mean, you know, painting you know, bright colors on rusty surfaces, I can definitely see how there can be an upside to that. But you got to be creative at least. That's right. You know, show, take, a, you know, take some pride. These That's kids right. nowadays with their hand in Nebraska and their skating <laughs> boards. And, uh, well, speaking of, Miley Cyrus has a new album out today, Endless Summer Vacation. I think she just keeps getting better and better. Uh, the single Flowers is all over. I just was watching uh, last weekend I saw the Purim Spiel. I always watch the Purim Spiel from Park Avenue Synagogue. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, every year um, synagogues put on a Purim Spiel, a retelling of the Purim play filled of cheesy jokes. This year, in fact, it was a film noir version of the Purim Spiel with mostly a whole bunch of the songs were all parodies of old jazz standards and stuff. It's Purim Spiel. <laughs> and, but there's one of them I just, I recognize this this melody. I just can't pick out what song is this. It was a parody of the new Miley Cyrus song. <laughs> we won't bow down to Heyman. <laughs> but nice. it, it, it fit in pretty well with all of the jazz standards, too. Nice. So, all right. So, speaking of a media like that, uh, this week marked the last episode of Poker Face, which is a really fun show that was on the Peacock Network. It's uh, directed by Ryan 
Johnson, the creator of the Knives Out series. Uh, this features Natasha Leone essentially playing Columbo. That's right. That's I had heard that it was a Columbo sort of update. It's, got, it's sort of a, a pastiche of Columbo. Yeah. And What's your review? Did you enjoy it? I really did enjoy it. I had a great time watching it. Every episode was a lot of fun. Uh, just kind of the old 70s style that they put on it. Natasha Leone is a force of nature, playing very much the same character she plays in Russian Doll for the most right, part. Right. Uh, but I had a lot of fun with it. I had a lot, one little dilemma towards the end is uh, the last episode, there was a, a music break at one point, and it was a version of Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. It took me a second. Like I recognized this voice and realized it was Burl Ives, who is best known. He did tons and tons of folk music albums. He's best known as the singing snowman in Rudolph the Red-Nosed right. Reindeer. Of course. And I really wanted to go look up his album that has Don't Think Twice on. It's a great cover of him sitting there smoking a pipe. Mm-hmm. And But if I start listening to that, are the streaming services algorithms going to think I start wanting to hear Christmas music? <laughs> I'm going to have to look it up on YouTube or something under a private browser. That's right. That's so right. The, the kind of thing that... Uh, that uh, poor Burrow Lives probably didn't stop to think about back in those days. All right, James, with your book, you've got a couple of events coming up. I do, yeah. Coming up uh, this week, I've got a virtual event at the Barber's Bookstore, one of the best bookstores in town. Oh, sure. Uh, I'm doing a virtual event with Bill Konigsberg, who is an, uh, an award-winning uh, young adult writer, um, and uh, we're going to be talking about sort of queer fiction and our new books. I'm looking forward to that. In April, I'm going to be at Bob's Bay Books in Bloomington and at Blue House Books in Kenosha uh, and doing an event at the Gerber Hart Library and Archives that first Saturday in May. So looking forward to talking about queer history in the 30s um, over the next uh, couple of months. Fantastic. Um, we just mentioned Kenosha a little while ago. Do you, do you go to the Cheese Castle when you go to Kenosha? I wouldn't miss it. I couldn't believe <laughs> that that uh, your caller had not been to the uh, Yeah, Cheese it's Castle. unbelievable. It's, it's, just don't it, buy the ranch dressing soda, whatever yeah. you do. I probably <laughs> don't need to tell you tip. that. Yeah. That's a good tip. Yeah, that's it, it comes along just when you need that break between yeah. Chicago and Milwaukee. Right. Especially probably coming back after a concert. Yeah. Um, more often, I'm just sitting at a gas station on the way back. Yeah. But on the go. way in, it's always the Cheese Castle. That's right. Yeah, no, I've never been to Blue House Books in Kenosha, but I've heard it's a great store. And and uh, I'm going to be there on Independent Bookstore Day, which is that always that last Saturday in April, which is a perfect day to support your local independent bookstore. All right, we've got to take a quick break. We will be right back with a few more minutes here on Driving at Home with Patty Vasquez. I'm Adam Seltzer filling in for Patty today. With me is author James Clyes. We'll hear more about his book and where to find him in just a minute. And Lady B is over here on the board. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Hi, folks. I'm Kirk Bankstead from the Monaco Brewing Company, and I sell progressive beer, like Biden beer, which is inoffensive and not bitter, and Extinct Elephant, a moderate red ale. Because you know those moderate Republicans seem to be going the way of the dodo. A percentage of the proceeds of each can sold goes to keep Wisconsin blue and drive the MAGA cult out of our state. Enjoy a great craft beer and help your dysfunctional neighbor to the north get its democracy back. To keep track of the good trouble we're making in Wisconsin and where to buy our beer, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and our website, MonacoBrewingCompany.com. And drink responsibly. All right. Once again, this is uh, ADAM marks the spot 820 on your radio dot. I've had themselves are filling in for Patty Vasquez here on driving at home while you're making tracks. I got stacks and stacks of red hot wax. I do not have actually any stacks and stacks of red hot wax. But you know what? If you go to archive dot org and type in Dick Barrow, like wheelbarrow without the wheel, a song will come up uh, about the cozy cabin, the black drag club from Bronzeville in 1934. Uh, Dick Barrow was also known as Sepia Mae West. That's it was a drag 
performer in the 1930s, a fairly well-regarded one, recorded a theme song for the Cozy Cabin Inn, and miracle of miracles, it actually survives. That is incredible. Yeah, he talks about impersonators. Uh, Impersonators do the rest. Uh It just kind of leaves it up to you to figure out what that means. Uh, If you've been to the Cozy Cabin, you know. Uh, So, James, where can we find out more about you? Uh, Well, you can find me at my website, jamescleiss.com. That's K-L-I-S-E. That's it, right? And uh, you can also follow him on Twitter and Instagram, also at at James Kleiss. And uh, I'm not not on there too much, but I I share what I can. And... uh, certainly enjoy following a lot of other people too so yeah, stay, staying being on it as little as possible is probably good for one's <laughs> mental health <laughs> well I'm, I'm in high school all day so I know oh, that too much time yeah to, uh, I, I try to not yeah, we, now which, which school do you teach at I teach at CICS Northtown which is it's a charter but we are the first charter school in America to be unionized oh that fantastic was, uh, something we're all very proud of and now we're all very proud and grateful members of the CTU all right fantastic um, I live right, I live fairly close to that I live right by uh, Dave, Devon Western yeah there we go that general vicinity yeah uh, do you like do you like being a librarian there well, I love it. I mean, we have this extraordinary, uh, diverse high school. Uh, we also have the high, my, my library has the highest circulation of any high school library in the city of Chicago. So it's a, tr- it's a true pleasure and an honor to get, you know, teens reading. Oh, that is uh, fantastic. You know how we do it? We simply buy books. <laughs> we buy old-fashioned books. We want kids, when they walk into the library, to feel like they're walking into the best bookstore they have ever walked into. Uh, and that makes it really hard for them to resist yeah. picking up a book. Fantastic. Yeah. And it is such, it's such a diverse area, too. I think the uh, yeah. neighborhood around there is about the most diverse tract in the census in Chicago. Yeah. Well, I live I live in Albany Park, which is just south of there. Yeah. And, uh, we, we've often bragged. I've been there for 25 years, and we've often bragged that I think it's the most diverse zip code in in, in the country. It, it and yeah. Rogers Park, uh, it's hard to, those two are both. Right, well, when I always tell people that around my neighborhood, I couldn't really estimate what any of the two largest ethnicities would be. Right. I, I mean, I could make a guess, but nothing I'm absolutely uh, absolutely confident about. So everybody, thank you for listening to me today. <laughs> thank you for listening to me, me filling in for Patty V. Uh, thanks, James, for coming to join me. Thanks, Lady B, over on the board. And of course, thanks, Patty, for having me. I want to shout out a thanks to the Mysterians who I know are out there listening. That's from Mysterious Chicago Tours. Uh, every day at 10 o'clock on the Mysterious Chicago Facebook page, you can watch me do a morning mini tour. Tomorrow, if uh, the weather cooperates and I'm feeling up to it, I might head downtown to live stream from Dying the River Green. Do you ever go to that, James? Not once in 35 <laughs> years in Chicago. It's, it's much more popular with people who come into the city just for that. But I, I honestly think it's really cool. They make the whole river look like ecto-cooler. Kind of showing my age there with that. <laughs> but very bright green. There was just a thing in the paper today saying that the uh, orange powder they use turns everything inside of them green for a couple of days. Exactly the kind of thing I like to go out on. So up next is the Deviled a- Devil's Advocates with Mike Crute. Thanks for listening. I'm Adam filling in for Patty Vasquez on Driving at Home here on WCPT.